So this is the time when you get to ask me anything you want to ask, and I'll answer as best I can. And they should bring a microphone, somebody should bring a microphone to you. Right here. Am I on? Oh, yes. I'm you on. are on. Hi. Um, thank you for being here. Uh, we met before. Yes. I'm Marcy Mayer. Um, I'm going to hit you with a hard one right off the bat. Um, we have recently experienced sufficient things that some people are wondering whether we really are open and affirming, whether we know what that is, whether we're willing to be that, and I'd like to know what do you think open and affirming means when a congregation declares that? Sure. Did you all hear that? What does it mean to be an open and affirming church? Uh, as conference minister for South Central Conference, I oversee the largest LGBTQ church in the world, Cathedral of Hope. I think it's, a, it's between three and 4,000 members. It, it means truly that all are welcome and that uh, we're not merely tolerant, but we're welcoming people. Uh, it means, I think, that like, for example, at Cathedral of Hope uh, and, and other churches in South Central Conference, that they're active in the community and justice memories, uh, ministries, uh, the founding of uh, uh, safe home places for LGBTQ youth uh, who have a high suicide rate, a high assault rate on them. Uh, it means being fully there. That's who we are. Uh, now, there will be some people who are less fully there than others, and, and they're still welcome in church too. But if you, if you signed on a line as an open and affirming church, everybody is welcome, and you don't try to hide it. You try to, to broadcast it. Uh, you know, it's hard. A lot of people don't realize now, I'm I'm straight white male, uh, so I had to learn this slowly, but it, it's not enough to be passively open and affirming because P LGBTQ folks have been hurt, they've been injured, and they really need a clear statement and practice that they're welcome. So I don't know if that's getting what you're at. If you're asking where I'm at on it, I'm fully there. Uh, in churches I've been in that weren't open and affirming, we hired the first openly gay staff person. This was 20 years ago. Uh, my, well, I told a story in the first service. The first predominantly LGBTQ church I pastored was Pilgrim Church in Cleveland. And <laughs> the first time I got there, uh, some of the guys said, could they have gotten anybody straighter? And then when I went to preach, they brought up a pink boa and put it on me, and they were they were testing me. Now most of the Cleveland Theater District uh, goes to that church, so there was a fairly large gathering of LGBTQ folks, and the Pride Parade was coming up, 
And, they, and I was told, I said, you know, we're going we're gonna to dress you up in a costume. You're going to run all the way back to Yuma, Arizona. And I thought, you don't know me, put me in hot pants, and I'm not running anywhere. You might run, but I wasn't going to run anywhere. And they decorated, I had a lesbian a woman who was uh, my associate. They decorated me in Captain Steubing's outfit and her as the ensign. And we had a love boat float and we won an award. Uh, so uh, if you want to follow up, there's something I haven't covered. Uh, as far as uh, the, the statement you made that you're not sure where this church is at, I can't answer that yet. But I can tell you where I'm at. Okay? Uh, but I look around. Um, people are going to disagree about degrees of methodology and stuff and that's the kind of stuff you talk out and that's how you make progress when I was uh, in the you know I didn't start out a liberal I grew up in a racist homophobic neighborhood in Yuma Arizona and my life evolved because I came to know African American folks that became my friends and I had to rethink theology I uh, gave friends at seminary. I had to rethink my theology. And one of the things I learned at seminary in the urban immersion in the Bay Area, uh, Sid Smith, who was a significant African-American um, religious leader in the area, talked about, and this is not in vogue now, but I think it had some validity. He talked about the, the obligation of the oppressed to the oppressor. And I think what he meant by that is that the oppressor can only learn if we force them to engage. And I think in South Africa, Mandela, instead of simply going through the courts, created these truth groups and, and forced those who had been so horrible to account for their crimes, forced them, drew them into dialogue. Gandhi did the same thing with Satyagraha, Truth Force, uh, the gatherings that, that confronted the British. And, and the British bashed enough heads, they finally came to the realization, this is not right. And they changed. So it's a process. And it's a process that I'm, uh, if I wasn't willing to engage in it, I wouldn't be UCC. Okay? Others? Yes, ma'am. Do it to Mike, because some people can't hear you. Say it again. Oh, what can we do to help you fulfill your charge here? Well, it's our charge. Uh, I would... Churches that get into conflict have common themes, and your conflict here, as I've analyzed it and heard about it is classical it's not there's nothing here that I haven't seen in in every other place I've been doing this ministry and the important part is to have an open heart and to be willing to recognize that we're all flawed and we all say at one time or another some things we shouldn't have said and we learn to overcome that in the earlier I got a variation of that question and I talked about my father my parents were divorced when I was eight years old 
my father remarried quickly and kind of abandoned me. Uh, and when I went through my own divorce that I alluded to, uh, I, I drove to the Bay Area from Kansas, and I was tearful and confronted him, Dad, you abandoned me. And he said, no, I didn't. Well, he did. And I recognized later on on reflection that he was never going to be able to understand that he did that. Uh, and I had a choice. I could forgive him and go on with the relationship, or I could expect him to repent and, and make amends and stuff, and he was never going to be able to do that. Not because he was a bad man, he was a gentle man, but he just didn't get it. And so I decided to unilaterally forgive him, and I, I had a great relationship with him for another 10 years till he died. Maybe someone else would have done it differently. But what I'm saying is all human beings are just human. And that's something that's guided my theology. Uh, I go, uh, you know, whether you're gay or straight, black, white, transgender, whatever you are, you're fully human. And if we could just grasp that, we close a lot of gaps between people. In fact, I think we close all of them. And it comes to interpersonal relationships. Whether you're married or in some kind of significant relationship, I guarantee you there's stuff you've said in that relationship that you would not want put on the screen up there when it's down, right? We're, we're, we're imperfect vessels. And so an open mind and an open heart, a willingness to engage, and a bias towards love. Okay? Others? What would you like us to call you? You can call me Don or Dr. Don or whatever. I don't like interim because it's got too much baggage with it. I call myself a transitional minister. Uh, and there are processes. People think, and I'll just hit this one head on. People say, man, we want to get through this. This interim time is wasted time. I guarantee you it's not with me. We have stuff we need to do. Uh, and People say, well, you know, why should it take so long? I'm sorry, I got a nose issue that came from your dry air. I'm sure I'll adapt. Uh, but I ask people, how many of you ever lived on a farm? Okay. You ever see the cows come down to the barn? What, what do they make in the grass there? B besides cow pies. <laughs> they make a path. And if you go out there and run them off of that path and you go back in the barn, what do they do? Okay. The issues that people have in their churches and the issues you had in your church, they didn't start two years ago. They've been around in some form for a while. In, in, uh, Jackie and I share a background in Bowenian therapy. It's a family systems and churches are family systems. And you have a, what's called homeostasis, a way of doing business. And if I come in as a consultant, I blow in, blow up, blow out, and three weeks later, you're back to the old way of doing business. You need somebody around long enough who's going to say, wait a minute, we talked about that, didn't we? We don't want to do it that way. And it takes a while for that to imprint, folks. That's just the reality of it. Um, and so it really is a three-year project. Now, maybe we can do it in less. Um, I don't lack for employment, I can tell you. 
Uh, there's lots of conflict around. Um, but it takes what it takes. Oh, thank you. Um, is that answered at all? You want to follow up, or did I cover everything for you? Okay. Others? You know what? Uh, I, I like Dr. Don, but, but I think here you're more first name, blah, blah, blah. You know, like I hear Jackie being called Jackie. You call me what you want. I'll live with it. Listen, with a name like Longbottom, and uh, this probably is inappropriate, but my father's name was Harry. <laughs> now you know why I don't run from confrontation. There was nowhere to run in Yuma. It was root hog or die. I'm not kidding. Others. This is a segue. Sure. Many people weren't here for the first session. What did you say to them that you would like for us to hear? Wants to know what I said in the first session that I want you to hear. Somebody asked me about this big budget deficit. And I said... Well, here's the good news. We have all the money we need. Here's the bad news. A fair amount of it's still in your pocket. <laughs> um, and then, let's see, what else did... Oh, yeah, okay, good. Uh, I have a couple... Uh, one of the top consultancy firms in the country is Corn Ferry out of New York. And I have two people who were in past times from Corn Ferry, uh, Elizabeth Resnick and, and Jack, and I'm going to uh, muck something, I'm forgetting right now, but at any rate, they work for me pro bono. All you have to do is, you know, feed them and get them here and provide them with a place to sleep. And I developed a process, and, and they, they grafted onto it and made it better. Uh, and this is not right at the start. It takes a while. But one is the congregation asks itself, who have we been? That's called History Day. And you, you, you know, it's nothing, not rocket science. It's butcher paper on the wall and, and felt pins. And who have we been through the history of our church? Now, for example, uh, I pastored, I went uh, to deal with conflict in First Congregational Church, Darien, Connecticut, where 50 of the people, church members and the, the, the founding minister were imprisoned during the revolution by the British for being revolutionists. And they were, they were turned in by Tories in the congregation. Those were British loyalists. And, you know, when that went up on the wall, suddenly they understood that they'd had a life, you know, they'd had 100 years or more, 200 years of conflict off and on. So that helped to put it in perspective for them. Who have we been? And it, in, in, invariably, what you'll find is that you've been here before. Most likely, you've been here in some form before. Then later on comes Mission Day. We have who, who have we been. Now we want to go, who do we want to be? And that's where the retired ministers, me, clergy, staff, have to be quiet. Because we've had a chance to imprint the congregation. Who do we want to be? 
And we have a process, you know, there's stuff put up on the wall, you got your dots, and, all, and nobody brings in a plan. This, this comes organically, grassroots, from within the gathered group. The only thing you have to do to be heard is show up. If you don't show up, you don't get heard. You know, it isn't where you get a write-in ballot. You don't get to be there. Uh, and then in the end, in the process, everybody has a certain number of dots, and they put it uh, where they think the emphasis should be, and you get a picture of where the totality of the congregation is in terms of who they want to be as a congregation. And that very clearly answers your question about issues of LGBTQ, uh, as well as other questions. Uh, and then I like to take a little time and one of the processes is to put words up that you think represents the church, and then to rewrite the old mission statement or write a new one liturgically so that you can put it in the church bulletin every Sunday. Because uh, if you do a long-range planning process, and you, you, most time it gets put on the shelf and gathers dust, you've got to have some way to drive it down in the congregation. And that's by having it in the having it as a part of the worship experience. And you can do it, and it can be beautiful, and it works. Uh, tell you a quick story. Uh, Susan Drake, uh, uh, a young lesbian woman who came out as a Southern Baptist and got butchered, came to a church, I didn't know Susan, came to the church I was pastoring in Manhattan, Kansas, uh, K-State University Church. And I'd noticed her in the congregation, but it took about a month, she came to my office and she said, you know, I've been waiting to be insulted and uh, but I haven't been. So I think I want to join the church. You know, I'm, I'm lesbian. Well, Susan joined the church. About a year later, she comes in and she says, you know, I feel called to go into the ministry. So uh, we, we got her over to Eden Seminary. She got a full-ride scholarship. She's brilliant. She's a Christian uh, um, chaplain today in the St. Louis area. But halfway through her seminary experience, she came back to the church to be the summer pastor. And I was discussing it with my council group, and somebody mentioned that she was lesbian. And one of the ladies in the group said, oh my, we can't do that. And we had a mission statement that was inclusive, that we said every Sunday. And every other person on the council said, but Peg, what do we say every Sunday morning? And Peg went, oh, it had driven down. Do you follow me? It, it had become part of who they were. So when that issue came up, it was no issue. And Susan came back, and it was wonderful, and she's a wonderful Christian practitioner today. Uh, so that's his, who have we been? Who do we want to be? Mission statement drives down the values into the congregation, and it also resonates with the values that are already there. It's, it's not likely to be new stuff in a way. And the third one in that you bring everybody back in, staff, former pastors, everything. Who have we been? How do we get there? Pathways Day. Who have we been? How do, how, who have we been? Who do we want to be? How do we get there? Pathways Day. And then you, you chart out how you can achieve these things, how you can be the kind of church you want to be. Because it doesn't happen by accident. You know, you've got, you've got to have some Myers-Briggs J's around who say, okay, we've got to cross those T's and dot those I's. You know, it's a nice thing to envision something, but we've got to put some legs on this animal. And that's where you do that. And so when you go to look for a pastor, here's a mistake that churches make. Um, nice soprano voice. Excellent. I was listening to it over there. Uh, when you go to look for a pastor, a lot of churches 
They don't know what they want to be. And so they go looking for a pastor who's going to supply the answer for them. But you know what? That doesn't work. Because you're not going to be who I think you ought to be. And you shouldn't be. You need to be who you believe you want to be. So figure out who you want to be and go find somebody who says, I want to be that too. I'll work with you. We'll co-construct. Not top down, bottom up. I think it works. Makes a difference. And, and it draws churches together because people are motivated by their own ideas. Lo and behold, surprise, surprise, right? Others? Yes. Yes, sir. Think you can get the energy and sense of humor back so we can all feel comfortable again? The, the, say it again. Energy and the sense of humor back so that we can all feel comfortable again? Well, we had a, a gentleman here, what, three, four years ago? Ben? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had some good energy, some good young energy, not that youth meant, means anything, but he had a good sense of humor, and that really helped to yeah. ease things. I got some good old energy. Uh, listen, uh, the issue will be, for example, like here today when I ask you a question, you guys don't answer very much. Although, the la who's the lady who said you're 15 minutes in? Thank you. That's the attitude I like. All right? When I raise a rhetorical question in worship, it's not rhetorical. You know, we are not an African-American church, but we can dialogue. You can learn. It's dialogical worship is better. You can talk back. When, when I preach from the pulpit, that's part of the conversation. It's not the biggest part of the conversation. I, it's not my place to tell you what God's will for this church is. It's my place to participate in the conversation about what God's will is for this church. And, and it's liberation theology. It's called the hermeneutical circle. It's uh, truth is established by getting all as wide a diverse group as you can get, talking about what it means. And that brings them together. And as far as sense of humor is concerned, I have a great one. Now, I can't guarantee, I mean, I, I love being picked on. Uh, but the thing is, I pick back. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. You know, if we're, not, if we're not laughing together, it ain't working. Yeah. And getting back goes back to the issue that the lady raised towards the back, and that is, what can I do to help? You have to have an open heart. You have to be willing to forgive people who may not uh, feel like they did anything wrong and you think they did. Well, you know, our life is too short to build barriers between people and, and we all love the church. We want the church to do well. And that's what it takes. This, yeah, then there's that gentleman here afterward. Or either one, however you want to do it. How, how many conflicted churches have you worked with? How many what? Conflicted churches have you worked with? As, as a transitional or including the ones in my career? <laughs> yeah. uh, four. And that's, that's about ten years worth right there. Uh, I, have, I have real tangible 
serious experience with them. You're not at the conflicted level of two of the ones I've been in. And, and the patients both survived. <laughs> two of them were lawyered up. And I don't mean some in-house pro bono church member who says, well, I'll represent you. No, they paid money to go outside and get lawyers. I, I came into a church, I'll just tell you quickly, I won't name it, where the, the, there was a husband and wife pastor, and it, and it went south. It was, it was ugly. And the congregation, and there was a lot of endowment money, and certain aspects of the congregation felt like they were spending it like quote-unquote drunken sailors, right? And so the congregation voted in a congregational meeting to tell the board of directors not to spend any money outside the budget. Well, the, the church was stuck, the system was stuck, and the board of directors got a legal opinion and pledged a million dollars to start a new church just to get these people to leave. So when I came, instead of coming down in front and talking with them like AMU, I had to sit there and listen to, to the board of directors try to explain to people why they pledged a million dollars. And 15 minutes in, there was blood on every wall in that sanctuary. It was ugly. And I didn't even have a contract. But I, I looked at what was happening, and you know, you may not agree with this, but it was a gut call. I got up, took the microphone, and said, folks, this is like a therapy session that's gone on too long, and it's over. And I don't usually say this to people the first time I meet them, but there's a line down the sanctuary of this church. Over here, we're going to do something positive. If you can't get over here, you need to pray about where you should be. And I closed the service. Uh, did I have the authority to do that? No. But it wasn't a safe place. And to the time I left that church, I was there three years, people would come to me and say, that's the day I decided to stay. Why? Because they knew I could ride the horse and make it safe. Um, so you're not, you're not in that range. And you're not going to get in that range. That was a Conflict comes level one, two, three, four, five. Level three is pretty good conflict. You're, you're, you're above that. Level four is we want to win. Level five is we don't just want to win. We want to destroy you. This church was level five. And it, it, it was truly ugly. It, it, it took a year to get them to honor that pledge and get rid of that million dollars. And as soon as they got rid of that million dollars, and they had eight million, as soon as they got rid of that million dollars, church started getting healthy. And the day that I got down in front of that church, the week before, before I even got there, the people who were upset had put in a complete new slate of officers. Well, they could only do 50% of them for the board of directors and one. So it was like, it, it, it was, that poor church was the laughing stock of the UCC. And, and it was the bane of Dorhauer's existence. But, it, but it, it's, it's a good church today. So I've been there, if that's what you're asking. Okay. And, and I've been the bug on the windshield, too. Yeah. I, I, I pastored, I was a pastor here and then went to Wisconsin. And the senior minister and the associate minister had both had their own lawyers. 
And when they fired the associate minister, the air was blue as she left the sanctuary. Yeah. Uh, but it, and it was a 900-member church yeah. with 100 people coming. Yeah. And what I did was come in, hug people, talk to people, laugh with people, help them to understand that we got the future ahead of us. Within a couple months, things came back. But I've been there, and I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And what I'm going to do when I'm in town again, I'm going to get all you retired ministers together. And I told Jim White, and he can buy lunch. <laughs> he followed you. I could tell you stories about this church. Oh, I just love to hear them. We're going to all get together. We're going to have to make sure we're rowing the same way. Because former ministers can be a blessing or they can be something else. I can say this. I'm on your team. Amen. You're welcome. Glad to have you. Anyone else? Yes. We weren't able to get here for the sermon. Yeah. I'm sorry, we just couldn't make it. But did you talk about your family and yes. kids and all that? I'd love to hear it. Yeah, but I'll tell you briefly, I have a wife, three Vislas, four children, and now five grandchildren. Uh, just had a, uh, the first biological grandchild born in Denver a little over a week ago. Lennon James Longbottom. Nobody wanted to name him Harry. I tried, but they weren't having it. Uh, and anybody here in here have a Visla? It's a Hungarian pointer, a bird dog, and they could run on all four walls and not hit the floor. I'm a dog lover. People ask, what are your hobbies? I walk five miles a day with the dogs, and I, uh, I weight lift three times a week. Um, and I don't golf. And uh, I don't own a boat. Um, that's what I do. And I, I do church. I do some other stuff, but nothing, other, you know, nothing big. Can we introduce you to golf? Uh, <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, I played basketball for 50 years. And my line is, I don't like any game where you can't laugh at somebody and run into them. <laughs> I, yeah, I'll tell you some more stories about that. Yes, ma'am. I'm curious what your transition plan for moving here looks like and for really getting in to know us. Um, and how do you balance that with uh, the fact that you know you are not going to be here long term? How do you really get to know us knowing that you will be leaving us? Um, I'm, it's, it's like with a therapist, you establish a therapeutic alliance. It doesn't take a lot of time if you do it right. I mean, part of what I did up there, to, you were here for the sermon. I showed you a little bit of my soul. I, I was vulnerable, okay? That, that, that makes all the difference. That's why I did it. So you get a piece of me and see a piece of me that you probably won't see for a long time out of most ministers. And that accelerates the process. 
I am going to be walking beside you. I am going to be one of you. Uh, and it will not be very long to take to happen. That's the answer to that. Now, the issue of whether you can commit to someone uh, for a three-year span, I, most people do with me, okay? That's all I can tell you. Uh, I understand your issue, the issue you're raising. Uh, I have not found it to be an issue. Um, uh, the... Doing transitional work, virtually every church I've left really liked me. Now, on one occasion at least, that wasn't entirely true with the church where I was settled minister years ago. Okay? So I don't know. I think I'm one of these characters that I'm, I could ne never be anybody's 20-year man because I, I pushed, pushed the edge too much. All right? But three years is a nice therapeutic length of time. Uh, and... Uh, as far as moving up here, uh, I will be up here uh, most of the time. Uh, Marianne will be with the house, which is going on the market April 1st. I will, uh, uh, um, I'm, I'm done with uh, South Central Conference. Uh, well, the discussion is taking place as I speak, but I've asked them to let me out early of my 90-day thing, uh, and they seem willing to do that. So it looks as though I'll be free uh, as of March 31st, which frees me up for April 1st. Uh, um, I may need to fly back for two things. One is the annual meeting to say goodbye and have closure, and that's uh, second weekend of June. And the other is I'm testifying in a court case about somebody who uh, absconded with church money. So other than that, you know, You'll have me full time, I guarantee you that. And now what's a little different with me, folks, you'll all have my cell phone number. I don't, I, you don't have to call an answering service with me. If you have something you think you need to talk to me about, just call my number. It's never been a problem. It's something about me that people don't call me unless they have a good reason. I don't know why. Yes. I have to wait. Okay. Um, so if it takes three years or so for us to be healthy enough to welcome a permanent lead minister, at what point in that three years do we start the whole process of the call over again? Good question. She wants to know, when do you start doing your profile and, and looking at ministers and stuff? And uh, if you've ever been through a divorce uh, and been with a therapist, they're going to tell you, generally speaking, you ought to stay out of any significant relationship for three years while you work on your stuff so you don't carry it over into the next marriage. What I tell churches, and this is true, when you start actively searching for your new minister, you're done with the therapeutic process. You're done with the change process. So, uh, uh, because every, everybody's uh, focus shifts. Oh, who are they talking to? Why aren't they giving us more information? Uh, oh, I hope we get somebody young. You know, well, I want somebody with some experience. I want Jesus. Well, he's not available. Uh, so I try to hold people off, not for three years, because otherwise, but for two anyway, and then you can, I mean, folks, we'll solve the financial problem. 
<laughs> you'll solve the financial problem. Uh, and th- I mean, this church today, I-, I have to tell you, we, you know, we have a hu- we have a couple large churches in Texas, but mostly we don't have churches with nice organs and you know, I mean, it it was like brought back old stuff for me when I moved in that large church circuit. You're not going to have a problem finding a minister when you start looking. Your concern is to be ready for a minister when you start looking. Okay? Uh, they'll be lined up at the doors to come to this church. In fact, they'll pro- you know, I probably ought to increase my life insurance because they might, <laughs> might help me get out of the way quicker. Uh, no, you'll have, they'll be, you'll be knee-deep in them. Now, you won't be knee-deep in good ones, but you'll be knee-deep in people who want the job. Anyone else in the back? I'm allergic to gluten-free, and I'm hoping that you might be also. What's that? I'm allergic to gluten-free, and I'm hoping that you might be also. <clears throat> so so I, grow, I grow ancient and heirloom wheat. It's one of the specialties we have now at the university. We've had for five years a grain school where we're bringing back ancient <clears throat> heirloom wheats that are most, much more nutritious yeah. and also taste a whole lot better. <clears throat> but a number of churches have sort of abandoned these grains that were grown in, chi- in Christ's time. So I'm just wondering if you have... Any strong feelings about um, Well, I don't know about this particular one, but let me tell you something that I think is relevant. Uh, I was Southern Baptist, one church, uh, and I left the Southern Baptist over social justice issues and went to the Mennonites. Now, not Amish, General Conference Mennonites. They drove regular cars and everything. But I pastored these farm congregations where they grew the old turkey red wheat and and ground it up for cereal and all that kind of stuff. My therapy, uh, the, the way I keep from treating people in churches the way I treat, treated them in basketball court in the old days, is to grow things. So I, and I think the quintessential issue today is what we're doing to earth. Because uh, I don't care what you are, who you are, you got to breathe air and you got to drink water. Uh, and so I'm all on board for, I mean, I think that's good stuff. And, uh, you know, and I think um, churches need to practice good environmental ethics. Like, I know that you guys drink your coffee out of real coffee cups. I, I don't like coffee, but I think that's a good thing. Anyone else? Outside the church, do you get involved in the community? That's a good question. You may not like the answer. In a church like this, your settled minister need, and I know there's a board I have to sit on. It's ecumenical board or something. But what I've seen happen over the years is a lot of ministers go to sit on city boards and stuff to get their ego kicked because their churches aren't growing. I don't like that. I don't agree with that. Uh, I, I think you sit on some boards uh, back in the day, in the 50s and stuff, because 
everybody came to your church and you needed that public exposure. Uh, now, I don't think anybody comes to, to that because you sit on some sort of board in the community by and large. I think you need to be working your church stuff. Uh, uh, that's just my own personal view. So when I'm senior minister of a large church like I was in Omaha, I didn't sit on all these boards and committees. I did a couple, you know, as befitted, you know, I called that showing the flag. But showing the flag is not what you want me doing. I mean, I'll do some of it. I'll do what you require. Uh, but uh, you want me helping you to overcome differences and, and to put pe- behinds in the pew and bucks in the plate and all of that. And that's a full-time job. And then some. Back in the 50s, it was different. Uh, uh, but now, a friend of mine, Martin Copenhaver, wrote a book along with Anthony Robinson called The Church in Exile, I think it was. We don't have Christendom anymore, okay? We're, we're not even well-liked in a lot of circles. Our, our ministry and our approach to ministry has to, has to adapt to the nature of the times today. And making Caesar happy, I'm getting on thin ice here, but maybe making Caesar happy by praying at football games and, and sitting on certain boards and stuff, that makes Caesar happy. It doesn't put people in your pews. Authenticity puts people in the pews. Uh, Cathedral of Hope in Dallas, three, 4,000 members, largest LGBTQ church. They grew. They took off during the AIDS crisis. And they never stopped. Okay? It, they, they took off by answering an existing need in their community. And that's part of what we have to look at. What need are you answering? And I think you are, you know, I, I know social justice is a big thing here. Uh, so I'm sure you're doing some stuff. Are you doing enough? Are you doing the right stuff? I, I don't have any answer to that. And it's not mine necessarily to answer that. You know, that's really you guys got to make your choices about that. I'll tell you what I think, probably more than you want, but I recognize you may not do what I think, and that's fine. Anyone else? When they start to leave, it's usually a pretty good indicator it's time to quit. <laughs> hey, I don't blame you. Anyone who has, has one, they don't want to lose. Thank you for, Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs>